Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. Via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline from Basketball News, he's going to help sort it out. Kind of set the stage for us on this, informationally speaking, NBA-wise, interesting afternoon. Evan Sidery joins us. Good afternoon, Evan. How you doing? Doing great, John. How about yourself? Well, it, it was made more interesting, I think, a little bit earlier this afternoon with Brian Windhorst dropping that nugget as far as the Pacers trying to wiggle free from number seven. I set this up, Evan, and I'll let you play off of it, as about 90% of all these rumors we hear prior to any draft, whether we're talking about the NBA or the NFL, turns out to be just a waste of breath, nothing but hot air. So where does this particular rumor fall in how Brian Windhorst talked about it and how you look at the availability of wings out there in which the Pacers would like to go ahead and get somebody that's already produced at the NBA level in which the Pacers may be hard targeting. Yeah, just to set the stage real quick for you, for those that haven't known, like Brian Windhorst said earlier today, they're looking for a high-level wing player. And when you think about who fits the criteria of a high-level wing player, I come back to one I mentioned often on the show with you, John, and one I know the Pacers have had heavy interest in. Uh, I had a trade line also last year, and that's OG Ananobi. I-, I think number seven overall just for OG Ananobi straight up would be too much to pay. But let's say, hypothetically speaking, you can get OG plus the 13th pick in the draft, and then you say let's trade the 7th and the 26th and the 29th pick, for example. Trade your late first-round picks, trade seven. You still get a lottery pick at 13, and you get a starting caliber, high-level wing talent, in my opinion, in OG Ananobi. And I'm trying to think of other wings that could maybe fit that criteria, but I doubt Brandon Ingram for example, New Orleans makes sense for the seventh pick. I think he's definitely going to stay in New Orleans unless they get the number two overall pick or something along those lines. So we try to really try to think of the criteria that Windhorse is mentioning. And when Windhorse puts stuff out, I very much take it seriously. And I think, honestly, I keep coming back to one name, and that's OG Ananobi. And I think there's actually a good package to get around here for both sides, for Indiana and Toronto, if they want to move back. The, the question is for Indiana, how far are you willing to move back? Is 13, for example, too far if you don't like a guy in that range? So Evan Sider of Basketball News joins us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I want to get back to something you just mentioned, too, you know, in, in saying that for Ananobi, for the number seven, is, is too steep. So you believe, as I had stated as well, that there's an opportunity for the Pacers here to trade off seven, get Ananobi, and, and trade these, these other assets they have, certainly, um, later on in the draft, and then also obtain number 13, so you could get at the end of, of the NBA draft lottery, and also acquire OG Ananobi that that is something that you think at least if it is reportedly on the table something could be done yeah, I think so. I think that's something like that makes sense for both sides, especially if the Pacers feel like a player in that 13 range will fall to them. Two guys that came in for private workouts, or excuse me, one was a group workout with Leonard Miller of G League Ignite. He was Scoot Henderson's teammate. He's been projected in that late lottery mid-first round range. He fits the four spot, too. He makes a lot of sense that they do want to trade back from 7 to 13. He's in a tier below, I would say, a Jarris Walker and a Taylor Hendricks, but he certainly plays the same position, has great athleticism and great defense potential, too. 
And then one player, if you're hypothetically speaking, let's say, John, I know you really value Buddy Heald. I know the Pacers value Buddy Heald for his shooting too, but let's say if, if it's required in that deal, you trade seven and those late first-round picks plus Buddy Heald to Toronto for OG and OB plus the 13th pick. They just, they just brought in Grady Dick yesterday from Kansas, and I, I know he didn't really make sense in the team with Buddy Heald here, but if he's there at 13, for example, you kind of can plug and play Grady Dick to be your new Buddy Heald kind of player, and you add OG and OB on top of that. So those are kind of two guys I'd look out for if they're going to trade back and do something like that. So Evan Sider joins us. Uh, well, there's some similarities to, and I know not a lot of Pacer fans want to double back to that, knowing what you know right now regarding Kawhi Leonard, but might this be a situation where you find out maybe coming up next uh, Thursday night or something the Pacers are drafting? For the Raptors at number seven overall, is that a kind of a scenario that you you could foresee going down here if, again, any of these rumors might be true? I think that's certainly a possibility. And with the Raptors hiring Darko Narjakovic, who's the new head coach, he was the assistant with Memphis, assistant before in Phoenix. He's known for player development. So I think that kind of signals to me they're probably going to rebuild here. And if Fred Van Vliet leaves in free agency, I think OG and Anobi can probably bring back the best they want to if they want to reset a little bit. I know Dallas makes some sense for him at the 10th overall pick. Potentially that can make some sense for both sides. Sacramento has been registered as having an interest. Same with Memphis. So I think it'd be more than just Indiana buying for OG Ananobi. And that's why I think the seventh overall pick could be what's needed to make it happen because Dallas sounds like they're very interested in OG Ananobi and might be willing to go up that 10 pick in the draft. So if they want to beat out different teams' offers for OG Ananobi, which it seems like the Raptors are more than willing to listen to, I think it's going to have to be something around that seventh overall pick. That's a really risky move, though, just because OG Ananobi is a great fit here. We know how great of a shooter he is and a great defender he'd be next to Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Matherin. But he's on a one-year deal. You have to convince him to stay long-term. If for some reason he just says, you know what, I think I could go somewhere else next year, that could be looking like a disaster later on. So I think the only way I'd accept a sort of deal around OG and Anobi is to know ahead of time, hey, OG's willing to sign a long-term extension. He's willing to do it this summer to make it happen. So I, if they were to do something like that and trade the pick for a veteran like OG and Anobi, who does check all the boxes for what they're looking for, I'd be thinking that they know he's probably going to be here long-term if they do do that trade. Well, there's no way in the world you do it unless you do know, right? Unless you have kind of a wink and nod type of deal moving forward where you know. I mean, there's no there's no way in the world. It's not like, you know, the Pacers aren't in a position to make, you know, a I, I, what I believe is a major move. I think what it should be is just a, a significant step forward, but not a major move. I mean, if you roll the dice like that, then then you believe you, you're going for, you know, everything or bust right here. And that's certainly not the situation the Pacers are close to. No, and I think it might be because Kevin Pritchard did mention this at his uh, end of my press conference was they were getting aggressive. They were offering a lot of their draft capital in certain trades, and I believe Zach Lowe mentioned uh, around the deadline back in February that OG Ananobi was their target for all those first-round picks they offered. So if they were to, let's say, revisit that now, do you think the seventh overall pick, do you believe a Jairus Walker or a Taylor Hendricks is worth passing on? for OG Ananobi because it seems like a guarantee at this point, unless something crazy happens on draft night, one of those two fours will be there at number seven overall. So it's really just a, a question internally from Rick Carlisle and Kevin Pritchard and everyone else. 
is Jairus Walker or Taylor Hendricks worth it, or should we drop back, get OG Ananobi? And at, at that point, like you mentioned, John, he'd have OG Ananobi, Tyrese Halberton, Benedict Mather, and probably takes a big step next year as well, and Miles Turner. That's a legitimate starting four right there, and if you can keep around a piece like a Buddy Heald for your bench, or if you can keep around some of these young guys that develop more in this draft class, I think they're in a very good spot here to make a big jump next year, and that'd be kind of signifying to me if they make a move like this for OG and Anobi, that they're eyeing 45, 50-plus wins next year. It's uh, Evan Snyder of Basketball News uh, talking up some of these rumors we're getting now under a week to go before the NBA draft, and this one involving the Pacers. Uh, Evan's with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. So, I mean, what do you think about this overall? I mean, even beyond the risk, which I, I wouldn't have to think they were going to take much risk in this. I think more of the risk is that you know, if the seventh overall selection turns into Kawhi Leonard, and we have to put up with that for like uh, 12 years, and that particular conversation, you know, knowing what you know after they traded for George Hill at the moment, it made all the sense in the world and now you look back on it even though that they didn't want Kawhi Leonard and had no interest you're always going to be tagged with that so is this risk versus reward you think something that the Pacers should ultimately be doing here or should you stick to more of what a lot of people describe it Evan as being sticking to the plan yeah, it's a really, really tough question because I think a lot of it comes down to internally how they view Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Mather, more so Tyrese Halliburton, where we saw it last year. We've seen flashes throughout his career so far in Indiana that he is a superstar level point guard. If he leaves to take another step forward next year, be a top 25 type player in the NBA next year, this team's ready to go. I think that development curve for this team's probably been accelerated because of the greatness of Tyrese Halliburton that he's shown this year, taking that all-star leap already in his career, being a 20-10 player on 40% three-point first player in NBA history to ever accomplish that, which I think says a lot about the offensive upside of Tyrese Halliburton, too. And if you throw in an OG and an OB into the mix here, like I mentioned, that just signifies to me they think they're a top five, top six team in the Eastern Conference next year, and it's a bet on Tyrese Halliburton. But like you mentioned, Jairus Walker, for example, has the exact same dimensions as OG and an OB. Six foot seven, seven foot two wingspan, developing offensive game. He could be an OG and an OB type of player three or four years from now. The question is, are you willing to wait three or four years for some of these guys? I think that's the big question now. We're kind of currently debating it. Is this patient ready to go? If, if they do do a move like that, they certainly think so. And I do think OG and Anobi is a fantastic fit. I just think it's more so, would you rather roll the dice on a younger guy and then pay, let's say, $25 plus million for OG and Anobi over the next four or five years on a new contract? Well, I, I mean, what that would tell us, you know, if, if again, true, if they decided to, to make that jump, it tells us that they, you know, they bought into what, um, you know, a lot of us maybe thought was going down in December. They, they buy into, you know, that winning, that consistency at that moment, and they buy into this team being well in front of what they had thought going into last year, right? That's the way you have to view it? Yeah, I certainly so. And I think the, the front office has mentioned this multiple times on the record that they always go back to that December stretch where they kind of went downhill a little bit when Tyrese Halbert went out of the lineup. They won one one game in a game stretch and really kind of ended their hopes for any sort of playing or postseason hopes there. And they still were competitive when Tyrese Halbert returned to the lineup there. If you take that stretch out, this team is around a six or seven seed already without adding in another big piece like an OG and an OB, for example. So if they think one more piece like that and maybe a couple moves in the margins free agency, because the Pacers are going to have a lot of cap space still. If they were to trade off a buddy heel, for example, and a deal for a OG and an OB, they'll still have 30 plus million dollars in cap station free agency. So they could go out and make a couple 
couple win now moves to on top of getting a guy Goji Ananobi that would signify to me that they they truly do believe they're ready to go and I would not be surprised by that because if they believe Benedict Mather can make a big jump as well in his second year he averaged 20 points per game in the 35 games he got 30 plus minutes per game last year so you have two 20 plus point scores that are super young in Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Mather and you had an elite defensive wing in OG Ananobi for example and you have Miles Turner on top of that I mean if you look around the Eastern Conference John that's actually legitimately I would say a very good well-balanced sport to go up against a lot of the top teams in the East it's uh, Evan Sidery of Basketball News with us yeah, talking up some possibilities again we are now under a week shy for the NBA draft coming up next Thursday night. He's with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. What other nuggets, rumors-wise, are floating around out there that you've heard and thought about and think are interesting maybe more so than any other? Yeah, I mean, Bradley Beal, it seems like now the Washington Wizards are going to fully trace that rebuild. I'd be very surprised that Kyle Kuzma is back in Washington. He's going to be a free agent. Chris Asporzingas could be traded in an opt-in and trade scenario this summer. But Bradley Beal, as Sean Sharani mentioned a couple days ago, they are openly shopping Bradley Beal. Bradley Beal is cooperating with him as a full no-trade clause. It sounds like it's down to four teams here. It's going to be either the Miami Heat or the heavy favorite, the Milwaukee Bucks, and in the Sacramento Kings and the New York Knicks. One of those four teams are all linked to Bradley Beal. I think he ends up in Miami. I think it just makes too much sense there to help there. You can trade Tyler Hero in that deal as well and their first round pick number 18 overall. Something like that I think it could get done here in the next couple of days beyond. It sounds like from everything, indications the Wizards have put out there, they're ready to press the reset button and kind of let everyone go here. Yeah, no doubt about that. Uh, what would I know that you had covered for so many years the Suns? What are the things of interest going on out west? And I, I guess you need to comment on John Morant's 25 game suspension and uh, what that does to the Memphis Grizzlies for those first 25 coming up next season. Yeah, with Memphis, I mean, I was honestly surprised it was only 25 games. Full time, I've kind of been by the 40 plus game. Adam Silver to Steph Preston set an example that. But John Moran, he's a superstar player. He's a top 10 player. I think on both sides of the argument for how long the suspension was, like 25, a fair penalty for what John Moran did. They'll probably get off to a slow start next year, but once John Moran is back in that lineup and they get that chemistry back, I think they'll be back to a top three team in the Western Conference. They've been a top two seed in the West the last two years. So I'm not really worried about Memphis. They have a lot of flexibility, a lot of cap space, too, so they're probably very aggressive this offseason. But then with Phoenix, I'm very intrigued by what they do with DeAndre Ayton because, like we mentioned before, John, I mean, the Pacers are so lucky that Ayton did not or the Suns did not accept that offer sheet or decline offer sheet, excuse me, for DeAndre Ayton. And now the Pacers are solved all this flexibility because the Suns decided to match that offer sheet. And now the Suns are in a, in a really big predicament here with Chris Paul and with DeAndre Ayton. What exactly they're going to do with either of those guys? I ultimately think they're going to trade DeAndre Ayton on draft night for maybe some draft capital, maybe a couple of young pieces that can help out their depth. Chris Paul, I think, will probably return, but that's still up in the air as well because the way they built that team, trading all their future away for Kevin Durant, 36 years old next year. You have like a tier three-year window here with Devin Booker and with Kevin Durant to make things work. If you don't get out of all of this, that could be a disastrous move for Phoenix. So they're probably scrambling behind the scenes there to try to make this roster work because it's going to be a crunch there. So Evan Sidery, one final thing, too, getting back to the Pacers. There was a rumor floating around yesterday regarding um, DeAndre Hunter in Atlanta. Uh, any legs to that in your estimation? I think so. I, I certainly think OJ Ananobi and DeAndre Hunter are actually in a similar tier of player. I would certainly say OJ Ananobi is a more re- well-rounded player. 
I think DeAndre Hunter is more of a project type. He'll be more of a role player. They can give you about 14 to 15, 16 points per game. team support as well. He would certainly be the fourth best player or fifth best player on the team down the road. But I think, honestly, I would lean towards Ananobi, but I would not be surprised if DeAndre Hunter, for example, does make sense because Atlanta has a roster crunch, too. They have four guys making over $20 million per year next year. Trey Young's making almost $45 million per year next year. So they're going to be in a spot where they have to avoid the second apron and the luxury pack. So I would not be surprised if John Collins, Clint Capella, DeAndre Hunter, one of those guys gets traded. And just like OJ Ananobi for Toronto, I think DeAndre Hunter probably gets the best value in return. And like Jake Fisher uh, uh, mentioned yesterday in a story on Yahoo, it was around Chris Duarte and picks. I think something like that does make sense for Indiana. If you were to get DeAndre Hunter, keep that seventh pick in the draft, maybe get a Jairus Walker or Taylor Hendricks, but then and then you also get DeAndre Hunter on top of that, maybe that is the better case scenario for this team where you can still keep the seventh overall pick, get DeAndre Hunter, take a flyer down on his contract. If he works out, it's great. If not, you're not really in the in – the, in the, really that, that off, for example, if you were to get DeAndre Hunter, because he's a better overall fit for this roster now than it clearly Chris Duarte. So I think either way – they're in a good spot. I actually like Hunter and OG and Anobi fits a lot here. So I would definitely keep an eye on DeAndre Hunter, too, as an option. It's uh, Evan Sider with Basketball News. Evan, I appreciate you hopping on here really quick, and I'm sure we're going to utilize you next week because I, I bet the rumors are going to be coming fast and furiously around here. Have a great weekend. We'll see what happens, and we'll talk next week. Absolutely, John. Appreciate it. Get a legend in front of me right now, the longtime voice of the Indians, uh, which, by the way, on the road right now, Howard Kelman is here with us at Victory Field. How many years has it been? This is my 47th season, and I love it as much as I ever have. Absolutely incredible. 47? Yes, and by the way, I heard your interview with Bob Kravitz the other day. Uh-huh. It was outstanding. Both of you were terrific. Well, he's uh, he's a longtime friend of mine, and you know, I you hate to see that happen, but uh, the floor is always open for him here. There's no doubt about that, and hopefully, he finds a seat someplace else. You also mentioned this during the break, Howard. I brought up. When I sat down and I looked out to right field, I think about the legend of Adam Dunn hitting a home run that bounced onto West Street. You called that game. I heard you talking about that on the way in as I was driving in. That was in the 2001 AAA All-Star game. That's okay. And he hit two that night, and he almost hit a third. But that home run was such that it was so towering, I had the opportunity while doing the play-by-play to say it is soaring it is soaring it was majestic <laughs> absolutely incredible is that the longest home run you've ever seen here i think so yes yeah what um is that would that have been the longest home run that you had witnessed going back to bush stadium we had one at bush stadium it was 395 the dead center there was a mr dance right beyond yes. the center field wall yes. roger freed one day hit a ball the dead center <laughs> that hit the mr dance out there so mr dance and by the way oh man they never kept track of that until mickey mantle started hitting home runs the, the tape measure home run. They didn't really care about distance at all. But really? Mantle hit a ball. It was in 1953 batting right-handed in Washington off Chuck Stobbs. And they said it went 565 feet. The Yankee traveling secretary, Red Patterson, measured it. And from that point on, they have talked about distance in home runs. That's incredible. And Howard Kelman joins us. You're an absolute baseball encyclopedia. 
run back. Thank you. Going back 47 years and maybe even prior to that, because certainly you were a, a, a baseball fan uh, before you started calling the games. What are some of the best moments that you've ever either witnessed, called, whatever? I think the most exciting moment in the history of the franchise, and you were a teenager, so you may remember this, Game 7 of the 1986 American Association Championship Series. The Indians and Denver Zephyrs, three games apiece, bottom of the ninth, the seventh game, Rob Dibble pitching for Denver, which was Cincinnati, by the way. We were Montreal. Right. And Billy Moore with a 2-2 count, lines a base hit to left field on a fastball. They should have thrown him a slider, but a fastball to left. The tying and winning runs scored. We labeled it. It was magic. You don't get any more dramatic than that. And then we won four straight championships. That was the first of four straight championships. So that was incredible. I'll tell you the one as a kid. And there's a footnote to it. Game three of the 1964 World Series. I'm 12 years old. I, this Saturday morning, I'm in the bleachers at Yankee Stadium. Game three, the Yankees and Cardinals, a game apiece. Mickey Mantle's leading off the bottom of the ninth against Barney Schultz, who was just brought in out of the bullpen. And we were saying, wouldn't it be something if he hit one? Mantle, first pitch to him, game winner off the facade, third deck. Gives the Yankees a two-games-to-one lead. It broke Babe Ruth's record for most World Series homers, his 16th. And it was the greatest thrill I ever had. Fast forward, 13 years later, I'm broadcasting the Indianapolis Indians. We're in Wichita. I'm having lunch with our manager, Roy Matika, at the hotel restaurant. Who walks into that restaurant but Barney Schultz? And Barney comes over, and Roy says, Howard, this is Barney Schultz. He used to pitch for the Cardinals. I said, I'm well aware of that. He said, really? I said, Barney, in all the years I've watched baseball, you gave me the single greatest thrill I ever had. He got so excited he couldn't contain himself. So when was it? I said, game three of the 64 series, your first pitch to Mantle. He said, you no good, blankety-blank, and we broke up laughing. Oh, it's Howard Kelman, the legend, is here, the – 47-year voice of the Indianapolis Indians on the road. Of course, he's got to call that coming up later on this evening as well. Um, I was thinking about, because you mentioned, you know, when when Denver was the uh, affiliate of the Reds back in 1986, and I, I, I had some some family members and a group that used to go and sit on the first base side um, of Bush Stadium and would heckle every game. They were just like a group that were known to heckle. And one of the strongest responses they ever got was from Rob Dibble. Rob Dibble, Rob, they got Rob Dibble once so flustered that he was so at the top of the zone. It was like nuclear loose stuff here. It was like Ricky Karcher the other night yes. for the Reds. I mean, he could not control it. He was so visibly upset. Um, give me some of those great memories of Bush Stadium because I think about that. I think about one time I was there and Dan Bellardello, the catcher, got mad at what was being said about him. He went up into the stands in a game. And then one time Deion Sanders who was playing a triple-A game here at Bush Stadium, got kind of angry and went after some folks, too. Are these memories that you have? I remember Deion Sanders, I think it was 1989 with Columbus. He was playing, Bucky Dent was the manager. Yes. So, uh, Neon Dion, Dion Primetime Sanders. Then he later played for the Reds, of course. Uh, and I believe are, his quote was, they were, they were talking to my female or something like that was his quote back then in 1989. But that is true. I mean, he got angered. It, it's just, it, it's interesting to go back to Bush Stadium. It's almost like 
at times it was no holds barred. It really was then. We were there from 1931 through, let's say, July 3rd of 96. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of great memories, especially the decade of the 80s, because we won six championships. Larry Burden, the Celtics won three. Magic Johnson, the Lakers won five. We won six championships in the 1980s. So it was absolutely incredible. And four in a row. Uh, The 82 team was the first championship team since 1963. So it was so much fun and there was an attitude among those championship teams look these guys are trying to get to the big leagues there's no doubt about it however they didn't talk about that they just said we're going to play this game the right way and the big leagues will take care of themselves and they did and these guys got to the big leagues like hall of famers larry walker and randy johnson were on those teams yeah so we had a lot of great players too well you went when the indians were the triple a affiliate of the expos it was a who's who from galarraga to walker um to marquise grissom yes um i don't i think tim raines was prior to to that. I think Wallach was prior to that. But, I mean, you had all these ex- – Delano DeShields yes. was another one. You mentioned Randy Johnson. Um, I'm trying to think. Was Pedro Martinez here? No. He no, was they got here. him in a trade, actually, yeah. the Expos did, for Delano DeShields. Yeah, okay. So, But it was – what was the more amazing – was it that with the Expos, with the talent that was in and out, that with the Reds that you remember, certainly with the Pirates right now? What was some of the more amazing levels of talent you've witnessed here? Well, the Reds, when I first got here, were the parent team in the mid-'70s. And I got a story about the exhibition yeah. game. But when the Reds – and you probably remember the Reds coming in here for the annual exhibition. Right. Game in this, and Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan. It was so special. And they played. Yeah. They oh, yeah. played. Pete took two yeah. or three plate appearances. The other regulars had one plate appearance. But Pete would go head first. Anyway, my first year, uh, Vern Rapp is our manager, and I'm having lunch with him the first weekend of the season. And he said, the only time you're going to see Max Schumacher, who is president and GM, really nervous is if it's raining the day of the Reds game. Because that game meant the difference between in the 70s being five or ten thousand dollars in the black or a hundred thousand dollars in the red if the game got rained out we would only get five thousand dollars from the reds and the game would not be replayed so we had to play that game sure enough june 20th 1974 it's an overcast day with a forecast of rain well and everybody's a little nervous it poured five blocks from Bush Stadium, but it did not rain. Just a little mist. The Indians won the game. Johnny Bench hit a home run. Max Schumacher said afterward, that made up for all the bad luck I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and the other footnote, with Bench hitting the homer, I was in the Indians clubhouse after the game, and Sonny Roberto was our catcher. Sonny said to me, what did you think of Johnny Bench hitting the home run? I said, I thought it was great. The fans come to see it. Everybody likes it. He said, I think the same thing. I think everybody was happy except Pat Zachary, who was the pitcher. And what Pat doesn't know is that I told Johnny a fastball was coming. Nice. I let him know. That's nice. It's Howard Kelman here. You saw almost all, not all, but almost all the big red machine guys here. Yes. We had in the 75 and 76 world champions, we had about 13 of them. We missed bench by one year. And we missed Morgan because Morgan didn't come through. It was a trade. trade, Pete Rose never played AAA baseball. He went from A ball to the big leagues. 
Wow. Yeah, what happened was in the spring of 1963, nobody knew who Pete was. And they were playing an exhibition game against the Yankees. And he drew a walk. And you remember Pete would run to first base when he drew a walk. Well, he runs to first base, and everybody's, what's this? Whitey Ford, the Yankees pitcher, yells out of the dugout, where'd you guys get that Charlie Hustle? And that's how the nickname Charlie really? Hustle was Really? That was there on. right there? Yes. Charlie Hustle started here? Well, no. Or, or, no, I'm it sorry. It was a spring training spring game. Spring training game. And that's okay. how the nickname, Whitey Ford pinned the nickname Charlie that's Hustle awesome. on me. Where'd you get that Charlie Hustle? And Pete was rookie of the year that year. And again, he came out of A ball. Bench was a big prospect. But Bench played triple A ball in Buffalo in 1967, the year before Indianapolis and Cincinnati started working together. It's uh, Howard Kelman who is with us. And we get the baseball state finals games. Start here today with Ileana Christian and Covenant Christian coming up at 530. Of course, Howard, uh, 47 years as the voice of the Indianapolis Indians. You know, oftentimes um, we'll get excited for baseball when there's a rehab assignment from somebody from the big leagues on a different team. Um, What's the most excited you've ever seen a crowd with a player with the opposition from the big leagues doing a rehab assignment here? It's an easy question because one stands out above all the others. It was Nomar Garciaparo with the Red Sox. I believe it was 2001. It was around there. And he rehabbed, and he was playing. Some guys go through the motions when they rehab JMV. But he was playing, and he was hitting. And I think we sold out Victory Field like three or four nights. And he got better and better each of the four games in the series. So there was no question that that's the one that stands out. among Most of them don't stand out. Because yeah. sometimes guys are going through the motions. They're just trying to get ready. But he gave it everything he had. It's, um, it's amazing when you think about that, too, because oftentimes, those are some of the biggest crowds of the season when you get that one guy that's on a rehab stint. You know, for example, like Votto, I think, has been playing with, with the bats down there, too, and that gives gives folks, I'm sure, some big crowds to go see him. He was rehabbing earlier in the year when the Indians played in Louisville, and he was really struggling to the point where they stopped the rehab assignment. Now they've restarted it again. I'm a big uh, Reds fan, as you know, and we see a lot of that young talent. Any of that young talent that's up in the bigs right now, did you see, did you call games with Louisville? Well, unfortunately, when we played Louisville early this year, Ellie De La Cruz was hurt. Yeah. So I didn't get to see him. But we've seen some other guys, and, uh, geez, they have some talent. It's terrific to see what they've accomplished. What, it's really good. The team that you're uh, calling, what's it look like so far? How's the season been for you guys? The Indians game? are six games below 500. We reached 500 uh, a couple of weeks ago. Took five of six from Toledo. Then an Omaha team came in here and won five in a row, and we couldn't believe it. And the Indians had a better record than Omaha did, five or six games better. The thing about baseball is it's always, always has been and always will be so unpredictable, more unpredictable than any of the other sports. Like, go a few years ago, 2019, the visiting team won all seven games in the World Series. Uh, between, uh, that was Washington right. and Houston. Yeah. That. So anyhow, uh, because of that starting pitcher, you can have a bad ball club, but if you get a well-pitched game, or on the other hand, you can have a great team with position players, but if you don't get good pitching like the uh, World Cup team, World Baseball Classic yeah, team, yeah. You know, if you don't get the pitching. So because of that, the game's so unpredictable. Uh, we see what the Pirates are doing right now in the NL Central. Is that something, obviously, calling these games, is that something you could see coming? 
Uh, no. That success, I, I did, or I is it a surprise? It. Nor the Reds, too. I mean, yeah. both those teams lost 100 games last My, year. The biggest surprise is the Cardinals that are awful yes, so far exactly. this year in the cellar. They're about 15 games wow. below 500. Yeah. So that division, now the Cubs just swept the Pirates. So the Pirates are a game above. The Reds are a game below, I believe. It's incredible. And the Brewers are at 500. The Brewers are in a state of disbelief after Oakland swept them in Milwaukee. So Howard Kelman, who is with us, how much you got left of the tank? I hesitate to ask, but I'm curious. Well, can I tell you that Bob Euchre is 89 and still broadcasting the Brewers games? <laughs> he does. I feel I great. See, I was very fortunate, unlike Bob Kravitz and Bob Lovell, when I had a heart attack, there was no damage done to my heart. And it's over seven years ago, so I exercise between an hour and an hour and a half every day. I feel as good as I ever have. No lost energy, so I hope to keep going. Well, you certainly haven't lost an ounce of energy. It is still right there at the tip top. You enjoy calling these games? Oh, yeah. As Love much as you ever did? Absolutely. You never know. One day it'll be 2-1. to one, The next day it'll be 10-9. to nine. In fact, the Indians lost 10-8 to eight last night. When you look at overall in your career, you gave us some great stories and certainly some stories from some of the more famous, more enjoyable decades of baseball we've had around here. What stands out to you overall about your 47 years of doing this job? Well, people ask about the biggest thrill, and the biggest thrill is doing the job every single day. That's the biggest thrill. You get really, I don't get nervous per se during a game, except when there's a no-hitter going. And I've called two no-hitters, two nine-inning no-hitters by one pitcher. The first one was my first year, May 24th, 1974 in Omaha. That was six weeks into my first season. I'm going to have a lot of these. Tom and Carroll call one. But I've only called one other one since, and that was in May 15th, a Sunday afternoon in 2005, when Ian Snell of the Indianapolis Indians threw a no-hitter against a really good Norfolk club who walked one batter and would have had a perfect game. There's something so special about a no-hitter, a perfect game. You get jittery like you feel like you're playing. It's incredible. Is uh, Randy Johnson the best pitcher you've ever seen well, here or at Bush Stadium in yes. this case? And he's one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Yeah. Now, when he first got to the big leagues, he was not a star. He struggled a bit. He was okay. He had bouts of wildness. And Nolan Ryan said to him, look, don't walk people like I did. And you're landing on the, in your delivery. You're landing on the heel of your foot land on the ball of your foot, that will help you. He did. His control got better and he just took off. That's incredible to think about, too, because you're right. I mean, it wasn't like he was this huge um, in-the-spotlight type of star. I mean, he was a guy that just kind of had to set his place and go at it and let his ability show, which he did. And, and a lot of it, you saw at Bush Stadium here. Yes, we certainly did. He had a good year. He started off slowly in 1988, but had a good year and uh, started the 89 season with the big club. Montreal struggled, was optioned to Indianapolis. We, three weeks into his tenure with us that year, we were in uh, Rochester. Memorial Day weekend, a Saturday afternoon, he got traded. Montreal traded him to Seattle. Seattle. For Mark Langston. Langston, yeah. Mm -hmm. And they also... The Expos also gave up Gene, Hol- Gene Harris and Brian, Brian Holman, Holman yeah. who were two fine young pitchers, but they had arm injuries well, down yeah, there. Yeah, and Brian Holman was supposed to be better. I think they viewed him at the time better than they did Randy Johnson. He had better control yeah. at that time. Yeah, so, yeah, it was amazing. The Mark Langston thing, that was maybe the last time the Expos really did anything that outrageous, outlandish at the end of the year. Um, and, and 
and dug down into their farm system and traded it away because after that it was basically they were the ones that were doing right. the trading away of the stars. What happened was the owner was Charles Bronfman. He was going to sell the team in a few years, and he said, I want to win now, so do anything you possibly can, he said to his front office, to win now, and that's why they made that trade. Where's the, um, where's the, who has the, uh, the ownership of the Expos logo? Do you know? I hadn't, hadn't thought about it. I don't know. So uh, I'm the only one that probably would think about that. It just <laughs> occurred to me as one of the greatest logos, I think, in uh, baseball history. And they had the best record in 1994, but then yeah. the strike occurred, and that was the end of baseball exactly. in Montreal. Yeah. It was yeah. never the same after yeah, it was that. Ne- you know, it, was, it was never the same. But, I mean, you're right. You called so many incredible players that came up here in Indianapolis that went on to Montreal to be incredible. Yes, we I mean, did. I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting about some right now. But. Eric Davis, Cincinnati, too. Yeah. In Indianapolis here in 1983. He was here in 83? Yes. How long was Eric Davis The here? last three weeks of the season, and he tore it up. He was incredible. Oh, man. Howard Kelman. I could do this for days, buddy. I could. Hey, congratulations on the 47 years, and keep them coming. Thank you so much, JMV. I listen to you all the time. Keep up the great work. Thank you. That's Howard Kelman right there everybody 47 years calling indianapolis indians games and he continues doing it at such a high level thanks again howard thank you very much jeremy chin does join us down jeremy how you doing what's up i'm doing good how you doing we're down at victory field were you a baseball player at all back in the day in high school not at all Nah, well, I mean, you made a hell of a choice, man. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Your choice, your choice was pure. Hey, how are things going right now? And obviously, in the direction that you're going, there's going to be a lot of new and freshness under center this coming year, huh? Yeah, things have been great. We actually just wrapped up mini camp yesterday. Uh, we had a really good spring. Can um, can you tell? that there's a difference between, you know, obviously, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, Bryce Young being in there. Obviously, we're talking about, you know, Frank Reich being a first-year head coach with you now. Can you tell that, is there a difference from, from what you have uh, been a part of minicamp-wise of the past? Yeah, most definitely. Um, the energy is great. The, the group came in to really work this, this offseason, so it's really good to see. Um, really excited how, how we all come fall camp. Uh, but, I mean, so far, everything's been great. What do you gather? And I, I know you haven't seen a great deal. You've seen you know, just a little bit. But what do you gather from, from Bryce Young, from what you've seen him throwing the football so far? Uh, he's quick. Uh, you can tell he's definitely been in those, those big games, been in those big situations. Uh, doesn't seem rattled by much of anything. Uh, and he's super confident. Uh, everybody, everybody can tell his confidence, the belief that he has in himself. But he's also very humble at the same time. Did find it kind of feel like a rebirth of sorts for this football team, you included, with this going into this year? Is it? Do it feel good with this new and freshness with the coach and with the quarterback here moving forward for you? Yeah, one hundred percent. You know, you know and, and that's part. Starting with the coach. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, what, what are some of the things, you know, besides the enthusiasm you brought up just a little bit earlier, some of the other things that you've noticed just in the early stages about things that are changing, evolving, if you will, Jeremy, with the football team in Carolina? Yeah, a big part of the coaches have just the years of experience that our staff has, uh, the knowledge, like, that's been able to, to go around. And, you know, if I have any questions about absolutely anything about the game, um, 
there's so many people, so many resources around the building that I can go to to get answers. Yeah, you know, sometimes that transition can be be difficult, but uh, it just seems like to me with what you see, and again, I'm on the outside looking in in Carolina, it, it looks like that with, with the, the excitement that you got and, again, the new and the fresh feeling that uh, that makes up for a lot of things to where maybe team-wise you have struggled so far since you've been in the NFL. Seems like that that's probably putting you in a spot to be excited, maybe the most that, that you've been excited being in this Panther uniform so far, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to look forward to. Um, we have a great group of guys. We have a great coach, coaching staff as a whole. So there's definitely a lot of excitement right now. Um, but obviously, you know, being so early, there's still a whole lot of work to be put in. All right, so you mentioned Jamie Chin, by the way, the Carolina Panthers via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. You mentioned that uh, minicamp just wrapped up. So uh, when is it that you're going to make it back to Fishers here? Is it at the end of the month? Is it here relatively soon? When are you going to get back? Yeah, I'll be back in Fishers next week. So uh, I'll be hosting the camp on Saturday. Actually, on Friday at Fishers High School, Friday night. Uh, so looking looking forward to that. Super excited about that. What um what does this camp entail? What are you hoping to get from this camp? And obviously, somebody that's been through so much collegially, and now, you know, as a valued member defensively for an NFL team there in Carolina. What what do you want to teach to the kids that are going to be a part of your camp? Uh, I want to instill part of my journey, uh, really, and show them that. You know, accomplishing your goals and reaching it to the highest level of football and really not just football, but your professional or whatever is possible. And also the, the fact that come back home so to spread that knowledge is a spot to me. So uh, on top of also he is uh, Jeremy Chin is with us. You know, part of your journey is one that 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 obviously it's not giving up. And it's also, if you play at a high level, you're going to be found. And believe me, it's not like Southern Illinois. I mean, Carbondale's on every map. But, you know, it is not one of these these power fives, Jeremy, that we talk about all the time. But your story is great. One, because it's a local one here coming out of Fisher's High School. But the other is it goes to show you if you play at a high level, they're going to find you, which exactly they did. Yeah, 100 percent. 100 percent. It's uh, Jeremy Chin is with us. A little bit of a rundown once again for that camp that you're going to be a part of that you're putting on in Fishers, Indiana, coming up this month. Yeah, it'll be Friday, Friday evening at Fishers High School. Uh, like I said, I, w- I want to spread my journey, um, you know, spread my story, and and really just you know in- impact a, a group of kids and grab- impact a group of people from where I'm from. So. Show them that it's possible. And uh, also on Saturday, I'm, I'm hosting another camp, an IPS camp at Douglas Park. Um, kind of the same opportunity. I um, Again, one of the better stories that we've heard around here in a long time. When you, when you were growing up, Jeremy, who did you idolize as a football player? Did you grow up a, a Colts fan in Fishers? That was an outstanding fan. Uh, and I was, I liked a lot of players that were on the Ravens too. I was a big Ed Reed fan, big Ray Lewis fan. Um, 
I was a running back when I was younger, so it's like any time. Like, uh, so, Jeremy Chin right there, and obviously you're going to be a big Ed Reed fan, <laughs> you know, playing the position that you certainly play. And, again, he's got camps coming up uh, in Fishers. He's got one coming up at Douglas Park as well. Um, giving back to the community is what he does. The former Fisher High School standout. And, of course, the Jeremy Chin Foundation. Before I let you go, I did want you to, to hit on a couple of things. As long as your phone hangs in here with us, Jeremy, regarding your foundation, the Jeremy Chin Foundation and what that entails and how much work has been put into that so far in your young career as well. Yeah, so the Jamie Chin Foundation, um, you know, I'm really, really connected with the Charlotte community. Uh, one of the big things I noticed when I first got to Charlotte when I was drafted by Carolina was the homelessness, the amount of homelessness, the homelessness community. And um, really just finding any way that I could reach out and, and reach back to, to help in any way possible. So the Jeremy Chin Foundation really helps, you know, those dealing with homelessness and really alleviating their life and making their life a lot better from from children that, that deal with the, the issues to adults. So um, there's a lot of things that I'm, I'm doing. One thing I'm doing in July is uh, school supply give out, backpack handouts and things like that just so, you know, kids are have, have those things to go to school and make their life a little bit easier, whether it be going to school or, you know, people going to work, providing coats and things like that. It's awesome, man. Well, keep up the great work. You know that we follow you a great deal here in Indy and uh, certainly are proud of what you've accomplished. And, and again, it's just a great story of, you know, you come out of Fishers, you go to Southern Illinois, you play at a high level. And in closing, I've always wanted to know, because I bring this up all the time with guys I have on the show, when you were at Southern Illinois and you thought maybe – people playing your position not as good with you, not as good as you in your opinion is, is that a chip on the shoulder that helped you get where you are today did that continue to motivate you maybe your feeling of you getting slighted with others and then obviously now you know being a starter and a huge contributor with the Carolina Panthers in that secondary was that a huge motivator for you throughout yeah I mean you know it's crazy I really feel like it's kind of been the story of my life um, you know, coming from even when I was at Fishers and being under-recruited and not really feeling like I had uh, really not even the spotlight, the recognition and, you know, everything as far as that and that I really wanted to have. So um, there's always going to be an edge, always, you know, to, to get better and to improve myself and whatever. I, I, I know... You know, going to a small school, you'll you'll most likely get overlooked just from where you're at. But like you said in the beginning of this, you know, the talent, it, it always ends up getting found. It always get, ends up being appreciated. So uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity that I had. Really, even just coming, going to Southern Illinois out of high school and to becoming a second-round pick out of college. Um, really just taking advantage of the opportunities I have regardless if I felt like it was, uh, it was late or whether it felt like it was you know, maybe, like I said, later, not on time or under underappreciated in a way. You know, in Jeremy, in closing here, too, you mentioned being under-recruited. And I would have to guess, I'd have to guess there's a fine line between, you know, being being pissed, right, about something and not having that play a role in your motivation and then, 
you know, obviously you're angry about it, but then you're thinking about it all the time. And, you know, you're going to lift extra in a weight session. You're going to do extra in the film room. That is probably... You know, again, you want to be recruited, you know, by power fives. You want to be recruited by Big Ten schools. But at the same time, that's probably helped really outline your path to where you are right now at the NFL level more so than it would anybody. How much do you look back on that path and you feel like that I'm glad I went down it because this helped me get to where I am in the NFL today? Yeah, I mean, it's everything. Um, it's all part of my journey, all part of my story. and. Looking back, I, I wouldn't change anything about it. I'm, I'm super grateful for it, and I know it's, it's helped create the person that I am. And it, it's all part of the story, all part of the process. Job well done, and continue getting it done. Here's the camp again. Friday the 23rd in Fisher, Saturday the 24th at Douglas Park. The Douglas Park camp is free to the public, and the Fisher's camp is $10 donation with all the money being split between the Jeremy Chin Foundation and, of course, his alma mater, Fisher's High School in the athletic department. Again, the 23rd in Fisher's and the 24th at Douglas Park. And you can see him on the field coming up in late July once again in training camp with the Carolina Panthers from Fishers High School. It is Jeremy Chin with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Again, fantastic job so far. Keep on keeping on and when you get back again soon, we'll have you back on, Jeremy. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. And those those spots are still open, so we can we can fill those up at Fishers High School Friday night on the 23rd. Um, yeah, I hope to see everybody there. It's going to be a great time. I'm super excited. You got it. We'll send people your way. Jeremy, thanks again. All right. Thank you. With us now via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline as we get into that chatter less than a week away from the NBA draft, the front office expert for ESPN. It's our friend Bobby Marks who joins us now. Good afternoon, Bobby. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I, I know you're incredibly busy right now. I want to start right here. One of the, the Brian Windhorst rumors regarding the Pacers who drafted number seven coming up on Thursday is that of they kind of want to wiggle loose of that pick right now and go after an already NBA established wing. We'll start just on the surface. Is that a move? Do you think if they're thinking about doing that, that is beneficial and that would be the right play for the Pacers and Kevin Pritchard moving? forward well i mean i think it's all matters of who that player is um if it's a guy that's on an expiring contract it, it probably doesn't make sense if it's a guy that's on a rookie contract or is on a contract that's got some length that maybe makes more more sense here i think i think they're in a really good spot i mean i think where they are at um you know certainly at seven um i think they'll get a you know they're not going to get the brandon millers and the skewed hendersons we'll see who who falls there i think you can probably find a, a four if you're if you're looking for that um so I think you've got plenty of options, especially where, when you're picking in the back end at, at 26, 29. You've got uh, 32 and 55, I think, also. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I like you're in that in-between period. Like if you're going to move out of the lottery then or a, an established player, like you better hope that player is going to be here for more than just two years here. Well, I think uh, in a final year of a deal is one OG Ananobi, and he's most commonly been mentioned, and obviously uh, it was reported the Pacers had interest in him moving up to the trade deadline back in, in February. 
All right, as somebody that's been through this before, you you have to know that longer term this is going to work out for you, or that can be some dangerous territory right there. Oh yeah, I mean OG's a good name, but the problem you know with him, he's got a um, player option for next year. Um, although the extension rules have changed, would he you know it, it was a little bit more of an increase here. Is he a type of player that would, you know, commit to a long-term ex- extension after after six months of the trade? I think that that make that would make sense if you can get him, you know, to, you know, if you can get him to commit. I think you run into the danger if he doesn't, and then you go into next offseason. He's an unrestricted free agent. So. Uh, how delicate is that situation to try to handle it? Because you want to know the outcome, but you really don't know until the thing is signed and the deal is done. How delicate can that be? For example, in this case, if that is the path that Kevin Pritchard and Chad Buchanan would like to move down. Yeah, I mean, the benefit of it is that you have him for almost a year to basically in-house recruit one of the top free agents in the 2024 offseason. So that's the, that's the beauty of it. And the, beauty, the other second of it is you, you're, the ability to give him more money than any other team out there um, when you, in, you know, inherit his bird rights here. So we've done it. You know, I did it in Brooklyn. I mean, we moved, um, you know, I think number three at the time, um, you know, and wound up getting Darren Williams. And Darren was, you know, was going to be a free agent. And we basically had a year to recruit him and keep him and you know, woo him and everything like that. And I think it's a lot – I think it makes it a lot easier compared to next offseason if OG was a free agent and you have two hours to meet with him in free agency here. So that's the, you know, that's a little bit of the high, you know, the, the reward versus the risk there um, in, in that regard. So Bobby Marks from ESPN, he is the uh, front office expert in the NBA, joining us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. And Bobby, you alluded to the fact that the Pacers have a lot of options compared to the rest of the NBA going into the week of the NBA draft. Where might the Pacers rank, in your opinion, as far as having options compared to those around them in the NBA? Yeah, I mean, they basically kind of check the boxes as far as what you have available, whether it be you know, the five picks, which I think certainly towards that back end are going to probably be on the move somehow. I think, I think you know, what we're seeing now is teams parlaying the, the, the now, which is draft picks for the future, because eventually you're going to have to pay some of your younger players, whether it be Halliburton or, you know, maybe you make a trade, you know, the cost eventually starts to add up here. And so I think that's, you know, certainly one thing I think, yeah. And then the other thing is you have, you know, you have your young players and then you have, you know, you have the cap flexibility going into this off season to maybe go out and get one or maybe multiple players or maybe take back a player in a trade here. So I think they're in, I think they're in good position. I think the draft is, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, you gotta, you gotta hit on these picks. I think that's, you know, especially for guys that are on these low cost contracts for your rookie scale contracts, it, those are, you know, those are critical here and um, they've got an opportunity, you know, starting, you know, with the seven picks on Thursday night. To Bobby Marks with us, you mentioned that there is normally a, a drop-off uh, for everybody after the first three selections in this draft. But give me some thoughts about those that will go, you know, from basically four through ten in this case, and, and maybe something where you might be, be able to mine some gold there that will surprise at that next level. Give me some names that you like in that particular category, Bobby. Yeah, I mean, Taylor Hendricks from UCF is a big, big wing. I think he could probably play four positions here, and I think he could play small ball five. Um, 
He's a good name. I don't know if Cam Whitmore from Villanova gets to seven. I think if he does, it would be a steal. Um, you know, another another big wing. We'll see what happens with the Thompson twins. They'll probably likely go before um, before Indiana is picking. I think they're a little bit more of a, I would say, project. I, I'd say probably more of those upside pick. I think um, I think Whitmore, I think Hendricks, you can play right now. Put him in a game here. Um, you know, Anthony Black's a good name, but how does he fit with Halbert? You know, another a big guard there. Um who else? Drace Walker from Houston's a big four, you know, six eight two fifty. I think we could play you know, three four, probably five. Um, those are your kind of your sweet spots um, as far as you know, kind of in that in that range right there. So Bobby Marks, who's with us, the most common comparison we've done on this show is between Walker and Hendricks. And, and my thought is, if you drafted seven and that's your availability, I go Walker because what the Pacers need, defense and rebounding, I think more so than anything else. He looks like a guy that is strong and ready-made to contribute early in those two capacities in the NBA. How do you compare him if indeed that is a choice to be made between he and Hendricks at number seven, Bobby? Yeah, I mean, and I think he can. I, fit, I think he fits in well with Miles too. Um, you know, as far as you, even if you put him at the five, Miles at, at the four. Yeah, I mean, I think that's you know that's the fit part here. And I think um, you know certainly with you know with with Hendricks, it's a little bit different here. Kind of a more of a lanky wing. Um, but I think they have a. As I said, they have an opportunity about maybe either one of those players is, is staring at them at um, you know at seven, and I think they have an opportunity to get a good player. All right, Bobby, uh, about this time last year, uh, before I let you go here, the, the Pacers uh, signed to an offer sheet DeAndre Ayton. Uh, and then luckily for the Pacers, about 90 minutes later, Phoenix matched, and, <laughs> and that little conversation was over. Um, and I asked Chad Buchanan this about a month ago. I said, you guys feel like you dodged a bullet there. Of course, he's going to say all the right things and not answer that uh, to the question in which I asked. But I'll ask you that. Did they dodge a bullet compared to where they could be right now with Aiton, what they got out of Miles, their extension of Miles compared to what they would have had with Aiton had that thing stuck? Yeah, I, I think they did. I mean, I, I think especially, you know, the likelihood is that Halliburton gets a, a probably a rookie max this year. Um, you know, eventually the numbers start to add up here when you add um, Halliburton next year and uh, if you had Aiton there. Um, it starts to get there, so I, I, I do. I mean, I think I think Andre is a good player here, but I just think you know, paying a center thirty-three million dollars, and if his name isn't Jokic um, and Bead, um, you know, certainly in, in those those players that I just mentioned, um, I think it's a little bit of. I think you you're better off using your resources somewhere else. All right, one final thing. I know you get a run here, but I'm curious your thoughts. Twenty-five game suspension for John Moran handed down earlier today what are your, your thoughts on that is that is that survivable for a, a grizzly team that's talented but oftentimes can't get out of their own way yeah i mean they, they still have jones so that's you know probably one of the best backups in the league here i think it is survivable i think i wasn't surprised at 25 games i saw a lot of people were thinking it was going to be more i was like what? no it wasn't going to be more um, I think the interesting part of it is that he's not allowed to participate in training camp or be in the facility or basically do anything associated with the team. And it will be interesting come, I guess that will probably get you to December, those 25 games, where John Moran is in December here and where this Grizzlies team is. 
All right, I know you got to run here. We may catch up with you and see what the Pacers end up doing and kind of play off of that with you uh, at the end of next week or something. But hey, man, thanks for always finding time for us here in Indy because this is definitely going to be one of the more interesting off-seasons I think we've seen in a long time around this Pacer team. And we love to get your breakdown and your knowledge on that, Bobby. Thank you very much. Have a great yeah, weekend. I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for having me on.